Ladies, gentlemen, or what have you, I'm Orion Lavelle. I'm Travis Mattingly. And you're listening to Tooth and Nail, a monstrous podcast where on this most jubilant of occasions, we're going to be talking about the greatest monster to have ever graced the entire stratosphere of dungeons and slash or dragons. No, you're, that's not yet. This time we're talking about basilisks. Oh, fuck it. Let's get this one done real quick then. (laughs) We're talking about basilisks. Uh, You know, is, uh, mm, Mm? mm, Mm. that's how I feel about basilisks in summed up in a noise. Mm. (laughs) When I heard what we were going to be talking about, I was excited because in in my head, I'm like, yeah basilisks i fucking love basilisks yeah and it's it's a shame really and especially like i know we put dark souls behind us so once upon a time we used to do dark souls now we do dungeon dragons monsters i know we put dark souls behind us but i think you know the comparison injects itself into our brains and it's kind of an unfair comparison because basilisks in dark souls are really awesome and basilisks in this are Fine. Yeah, which is kind of weird because as a child, I think if somebody had said the word basilisk to me, I would have Harry Pottered and just been like, yeah, big snake. And yeah. then like as as through high school, it's like, yeah, basilisk, the weird frog things with the big fake eyes. Yeah. <laughs> and now that's just what it is forever. <laughs> yeah. Let's just talk about those basilisks again. It's really oh. fucking hard to say basilisk, by the way. Basilisk. Basilisk. I hope you're ready for 50 minutes of us mispronouncing the word basilisk. I hope you're ready for just a lot of unedited S noises. Yeah. The basilisk. <laughs> so, you know, subscribe to Nerdsmith. It's <laughs> worth it. Put in the notes, I'm here for the S noises. I'm here to listen to these two fuckwads say basilisk a lot. Yeah, it'll be a good time. So, uh, on the whole, basilisks... They're, it's not, it's not like boring to talk about basilisks do a lot of things that I flat out disagree with, but like the, the problem with basilisks is that we were this close to greatness, right? They were almost very awesome. They do a little specific thing that we'll talk about, uh, that, you know, I, I was talking to Travis, you, I was talking to you, Travis, the other day, and I was like, basilisks are very much the inverse of banshees in that. They are built around doing this one specific thing that sweeps the rug out from the entire party. It's just that banshees are constructed in a way that, you know, supports this one awesome thing and then also provides the players with a bunch of other ways to test their might. Whereas basilisks take the one awesome thing that they can do and spoil it. <laughs> it's tragic. It's the greatest tragedy of our time. It tries a little. It tries a little, and there are some good things to the Basilisk, but I think on the whole, I would not enjoy a, a, an encounter that you would typically build for a monster. I think Basilisks have to be treated in a specific way, but we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. So, basilisks are a monstrosity category creature, which we have previously described as both the catch-all category and also the place where D&D puts a lot of its traditionally mythological and folklorish creatures, right? So, before we were talking about onkegs, and those are just, like, fucking throw it in there. In this case, we got 
a, you know, a, a very common creature in mythology. Everybody's heard of a basilisk, for the most part, if nothing else because of Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah people usually have at least, like, a basic idea of what that word means. Yeah, and that actually will serve to be a problem when we get into something a little bit later on. That sort of foreknowledge, I think, muddles up how to handle a basilisk encounter. But we'll get to that in a second. Right. The kind of bas- So we talked briefly, you know, about how basilisks, basilisks have, across their, you know, existence, across their existence in pop culture, uh, they can be treated in a lot of different ways. The way that D&D portrays the basilisk, it feels a lot more like a monster hunter kind of creature, by which I mean D&D, I found, tries to make their monsters, or at least their monstrosity monsters, feel more like animals than, you know, fantastic beasts. So, like, you know, if you took a Komodo dragon and then stuck a weird magic effect on it, that's a basilisk. Yeah, just with some extra legs. Yeah, and... So, like, I understand that a big part of 5th edition, or at least a big part of D&D's monster culture, is predicated on this, like, ecology, right? So, like, you want all of your Mind Flayer lore so that you can build a decent Mind Flayer den. It's all kind of in service to creating a decent dungeon. But I think that if I had to choose, I prefer the Dark Souls way of handling it. I prefer, like, surreality. You know, I prefer weird curse frogs two eight-legged stone dinosaurs. Yeah, that, for sure. I agree with you there. Which, like, it's not really a critique of how Wizards of the Coast does things, right? So, like, D&D is more or less forced to use the most prototypical forms of the creatures that it has because, you know, they have to be injected into any campaign, so they kind of have to be a little bit generic. Uh, you know, it would be weird if they were Dark Souls basilisks. Yeah, I guess so. Because they wouldn't, you know, fit into your spell punk ass, you know, <laughs> your D&D campaign, right? Right. So, like, it's not really their fault, and I don't really hate it. It's just a personal preference I found. It's, like, hard to even explain, because it's, you could say it about any monster in D&D. It's like, yeah, it's just a monster, but it does, or it's just a beast, and it does this. But, like, well, like mimics something... don't really fit that. Yeah, there, that's what, there's something so mundane about this monstrosity, like... <laughs> If, yeah. if I saw this in real life, I'd believe it exists. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at, is that the way that a lot of monsters in D&D have uh, a real, like, not banality, but, like, a real grounded nature to them. Mm-hmm. And then which, there's like, Medusas yeah. and stuff like, like that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it'll be fun to get into, like, the third-party stuff. Because I feel oh, like the monsters there are a lot. They kind of, they like straddle it a little bit. It's kind of like Majora's Mask in the way that you have these creatures that are familiar to you because you played Ocarina of Time, but they're, you know, the context is strange and shifted and nothing quite fits together as logically as the, you know, the forebear does. Yeah, I can't wait. Third party stuff is just like, ugh, it's usually so friend, just chef's kiss. It's just yeah. like. Well, like, this whatever. is weird and awesome. This is what? something I would make. Like, yeah, and I know, like, we didn't put this on the internet, or at least it, the those are lost episodes, but ghoul presidents or whatever the fucking the ghoul, the ghoul emperor. king. Yeah, the ghoul emperor that just has a cape and is dramatic. Man, Tome of Beasts. Tome of Beasts is going to be some good shit when we get there. Yeah, I <laughs> just, I like a weird creature more than I like an interesting animal. 
you know? Yeah. And I understand that there, like when we were talking about Onkags, there is something to be said for predicating your monster in the real world, so like in nature. And mm-hmm. the Onkeg is neat and effective because it hinges on real-ass fears of insects. It's just that maybe it, it's because it, the basilisk... It's so, like, there's... A, but the Onkegs, there's no universe. You'd look at an Onkeg and be like, oh, yeah, that's, like, a thing that exists. <laughs> <laughs> there's no fucking way I would ever... Yeah, I think that's what it is. I think maybe basilisks lean too hard into just being reptiles with a weird thing that they can do. Yeah. But again, I understand what D&D is going for, right? So yeah, I understand there's, that they there's want... Room, there's room and there's campaigns and there's settings abound where basilisks fit right in and yeah. they're the perfect monster for some scenario and they're totally fine. Yeah. This is a good witcher creature. Yeah. I prefer yeah, a, good a good Dark Souls creature, right? Yeah. This is, <laughs> this is definitely like, oh man, there's this weird rocky reptile out in some cave in the forest it's like okay that's all it is it's just a rocky reptile yeah yeah so artistically these guys are represented as human-sized komodo dragon-like things with a turquoise hide it has eight clawed legs and these thick red spines that run from its head to its tail uh these kind they kind of look like a rainbow threw up on them a little bit looking at them right now uh, yeah, between the like the turquoise skin and then the blood red spine things that it has, I will give them that. I do like that color contrast quite a bit. Yeah, it's I. It's one of the things that I think keeps it from being uh, on my side of weird and dreamy. Mm. You know, notably the creature has Doctor Manhattan eyes, so this is another monster that we can throw into the no pupils pile. Uh, <laughs> It, I, when I was looking through this earlier, I started to realize that there is a real uniform, badass art style to D&D, which I think, you know, attaches to what I was talking about a little bit earlier, where it works for the traditionally epic creatures like Onkags and Angels and whatever. Mm. But for a person like me who wants weird creatures, who wants the mimics to be like funky Dark Souls guys and wants the aberrations to be, you know, unreadable piles of tentacles... Monsters that are given this badass art style, it doesn't totally work for me. Right, you want something a little more, a little more fantastical than just another large, yeah. angry-looking kaiju thing. Yeah, something a little bit riskier or surreal, perhaps. And again, I I get that this is an art style for accessibility's sake, and that you know D and D's art style is. Uh, is attached to this notion of having a high fantasy epic encounter with creatures of pure evil and that whole sort of thing. I just get a little disappointed when, you know, I hear the word abolith or, you know, in this case, basilisk, and I end up getting a kaiju, right? When I want, like, a, I don't know, a a Dark Souls thing. Also, I feel like we should say, I feel like we've spent a lot of episodes just kind of talking about and occasionally shitting on the art in this book. I want Mm. to just, like, straight up say... All of the art in this book is amazing, and whoever did it is... Oh, yeah. Like, I could just... never draw any of these things in a thousand years. I'm just, yeah. like, on the curve <laughs> of I, I just reacting to what I personally like. And, yeah. again, there's, like, I do kind of like the color palette. It feels like No Man's Sky. I do like the blue... That's what it is. Yeah, I was you know, to... <laughs> Yeah, contrasted against the red. That is kind of dreamy and cool. I just... I don't know. I'm tired. I... 
am a little worn out on, you know, teeth bared super monsters. Right. So, in terms of the lore, as we all know, basilisks are famous for their ability to turn their prey into stone through eye contact. And basilisk nests, basilisk nests, Jesus oh fucking Christ. <laughs> Basilisk nests are typically identifiable by having leagues of, you know, scared adventurer statues littered around places where statues ought not be. I know it is by no means a new idea, but I really do admire any creature that can creatively show off how dangerous it is before it enters the room, right? So, and this goes, it kind of falls in line with horror rules. So, like, one of the first rules of horror is you show what the monster can do before you show the monster. And having a creature that comes pre-packaged with a way to do that, I think is really neat. Even if basilisks are kind of played out in the same way that like a Medusa is. Right, right, yeah. It's it's the age-old, like, the tension builder also. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I think that's one of the reasons why spiders are good real-life monsters. Because you always find the webs and the bug corpses before you find the spider. Oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> just like the looking behind, uh, or like, for real world Travis, it's like opening up somebody's trailer and on the inside is just caked with spider webs. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not stepping in this thing, my dude. Like, yeah, <laughs> no yeah, way. you know what you're going to get and what you're going to get is sadness. You have a giant spider in here and you cannot convince me otherwise. Yeah, and I think, you know, Again, anything that comes pre-packaged with that, I think is kind of cool uh, and worth having. Yeah. So basilisks are supposed to be really durable and adaptable, capable of living in a range of climates, though they often hole up in underground caverns and caves, whatever they can get a hold on. Yay, another cave monster. <laughs> yeah, right? So like, you know, but monster manual, what if my players are tired of splunking? Well, the book is also quick to point out that basilisks are domesticatable or domesticable. So if you raise it in captivity, you can train your basilisk to keep from making eye contact with whoever you don't want it making eye contact with. And consequently, you know, they make great guard dogs and basilisk's eggs are prized as a result. Feels a little outlandish. Like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> can it, who trained the first basilisk to not look at shit? Right? It seems uh, like... Yeah, probably a big, like, <laughs> putting it in, like, game terms, since it's, like, a constitution save. I'm just gonna say it was, like, a big orc dude. Like, yeah. An orc warchief just slapped it as soon as it looked at him, and he was like, no! Yeah. And I understand, like, of course, there's no point in pointing out what is outlandish in D&D shit, because whatever, flying airships and orcs and whatnot. Yeah. I... And, you know, the other thing that gets this a pass is because I do kind of like it from, like, a Bond villain perspective. So, like, I think this would be great for, like, you know, the casino boss with the eye patch pulls the lever and you guys fall down into the death pit where he has his pet basilisk guard dog. <laughs> I imagine that this could uh, turn into a decent adventure hook where you have to go and get an egg for, you know, death coin the mob boss. And then you play up the whole, you're stealing a baby thing, and it turns into that one Fallout 4 quest. <laughs> yeah, know what you mean. Yeah. I, uh, I had probably the craziest idea for, like, a thing to do to players. Yeah. Involving a, a gang boss and also a basilisk. And that is, if, the, if they're trying to, like, join the gang or something... There's an initiation that the boss has with his domesticated basilisk. 
Yeah. You have to stare the basilisk in the eye for an entire minute. <laughs> you have to have a staring contest with the basilisk. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I'm down with that. I'm down with anything that turns the basilisk from just a random encounter you find in a cave to having, you know, a human element to it or having stakes to it. I like the idea of, you know, taking this and instead of making it Cave Monster 98, turning it into <laughs> a really neat encounter to have in an urban environment. You know, I'm I'm pretty down with Bond villain guard dog creature. Yeah. Gordoff's the boss because he stared the basilisk in the face for ten whole minutes. Yeah, I think that would be pretty neat. So here's a kind of cool thing that I liked. Uh, the, there, uh, there's a little detail that the writers provide on this take of basilisks based on the whole, you know, the, the whole turn to stone thing. So because basilisks can turn creatures to stone, they don't really need to be able to run fast, and they actually mechanically move pretty slowly, we'll find. So pretty much what happens is... They just look at their prey, they turn it to stone, and then they just eat the statue. So their their jaws can shatter the stone, and their magical intestines can unpetrify the flesh. Uh, and again, it leads back into this whole that this whole detail of using their magical mutation to eat in a very grounded way gives it that monster hunter vibe again. Of yeah. this is just a a real ass animal that has a magical ability. And that is kind of a pretty neat detail, actually. I, yeah, yeah. I I read that and I was like, oh. And then we'll find when we get into the mechanics that a lot of their stats are based around having this ability to turn their prey to stone being a crutch theme. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty funny. We'll get into it in a second. So basilisks, they can turn their prey into stone. Some alchemists, the book points out, can utilize this uh, magical intestine thing, this transmutative enzyme whatever thing that the basilisk can do to create an oil that undoes petrification. So bear in mind, it doesn't regenerate anything. So like if the basilisk bites off the statue head, you still have a corpse. But putting this detail in, I think, was uh, fairly wise because it immediately provides the party with a goal for undoing any petrification that they might suffer. Right, so like instead of just losing a character, a smart, naturally minded, so I can imagine a druid or something like that, examining the body of the basilisk, finding out that they have uh, an internal way of undoing the petrification, and then all they have to do is take it back to John the Alchemist, who lives in the city that they hole up in, and, you know, they already have a decent way of bringing their dead character back, their petrified character back. Yeah, it's like a super smart idea to give... Even if it's not expressed in, like, the stat block, it's a super good idea to give an out to parties that might not have healing magical characters. Yeah, and this is, uh, we'll talk about it in a second, but this is a fairly early on monster. Yeah. So I can imagine a lot of, you know, very rarely will, or I, I can imagine very easily the party not having a way to cope with petrification. Yeah. So depending on how much they want their petrified character back, the book provides you with a a way to resolve that. Though, I mean, and to be fair, we'll see in a second, actually being petrified by a basilisk is kind of rare and could potentially not happen at all depending on how you read the rules. But we can talk about that shortly and possibly right now if you wanted. Sure. Uh, I would say that uh, just before we do, though, that... Something in your notes is pretty great. Hoping 
<laughs> if somebody does get petrified and you have to carry them all the way back to the alchemist, just hoping to God you don't accidentally drop your friend and shatter their face. Yeah. Along, <laughs> just on the journey. Like, oh, God. Oh, his nose came off. Oh, yeah. shit. That would be a really <laughs> cool ass, like, I can see that being a, a gimmick for a character. You know, if you have a barbarian or whatever, instead of giving them a club, you just give them the petrified statue of their friend and that's what they wield in battle that'd be pretty rad <laughs> it's like by the time you meet them it's just most of the upper torso and the head yeah like, yeah this used to be jeff but uh or like know. it's their it's their own arm that was petrified at one point <laughs> and, and got gnawed off. off that'd be pretty cool make that one yeah that's good i'll, I'll write that one down that one i might do yeah So in terms of the mechanics, the Basilisk can be, again, seen as uh, a real low-grade form of the Banshee in that both rely on really quickly temporarily removing party members while debuffing whatever party members remain standing. The Basilisk is a medium-sized monstrosity with no alignment. It has a pretty high armor class of 15 for a pretty low challenge rating of 3, which again reflects the creature's sturdiness. Conflated with the fact that this, you know, attacking this thing is problematic because you can't look directly at it, I foresee a lot of misses when you're fighting a basilisk, which I've said before isn't my favorite, and will find that uh, it, this can really easily turn into a miss-off uh, in a pretty bad way. Yeah, that, yeah, wow, I, I didn't realize how high its AC was. That is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a couple of standard deviations ahead of where it ought to be. So to compensate for the high armor class, it has a pretty low HP, comfortably, of 52. It also has a real low speed of 20 feet. Again, it doesn't need to run fast when it can just petrify. This also allows the party to make a pretty easy escape without too much trouble, in case, you know, this could very well be the party's first save-or-die creature that they run into. So the fact that the Basilisk is pretty slow, it allows the players to outrun it if they need to, which I think is a, a, a nice consideration. Yeah. This is kind of a, a cute detail. The attributes are by and large what you would expect. So it has really high strength and high constitution, but then it has negative modifiers for everything else. And again, I like the idea of the Basilisk having this petrification ability and then that just being an evolutionary crutch. So, like, because it can get food so easily, literally everything else about the creature atrophies. So its speed goes down, it can't think very- it doesn't need to think very hard, so why <laughs> think very hard? So its brain is just atrophied because it can eat so easily. <laughs> its perception is arguably terrible because yeah, it doesn't have to look for food. It's just like, it'll come to me. Yeah, why do you need to look hard when you're, you know, the heaviest armored thing of the entire forest and can kill with the look? <laughs> So it has 60 feet of dark vision, which, you know, makes sense. It's a cave dweller. And then, as we mentioned before, it has a really low passive perception of 9. So the Basilisk gets one trait. It is its signature thing. It is petrifying gaze. And this is the thing that makes the Basilisk the Basilisk. And there's a lot of shit to unpack with this. So what happens is 
If a creature is within 30 feet of the basilisk and can see the basilisk and the basilisk can see them, the basilisk uses a free action, this just happens automatically, to force the creature to make a DC 12, which is a pretty low save, constitution saving throw, as long as the basilisk is not incapacitated. So, if the creature fails the save, the petrification process begins. It's not an instant you turn to stone. It begins, it makes the character restrained, giving them the ability to take actions but not move, right? The transforming creature then makes the save again at the end of its next turn. If it succeeds, the entire petrification effect stops. If not, the creature is petrified until it is, you know, magically freed by the, you know, if you got some gizzard oil from the basilisk or if one of your clerics knows greater restoration, which your cleric won't get into level 9 anyway, so it's pretty unlikely at the level yeah. that you fight a basilisk. Even here, and this is just paragraph one, even here, the odds are mostly in favor of the character to not get flat out petrified. You get a couple of chances to overcome the petrification effect. And I personally really like that you get the extra turn, not only because of course the trait would be broken if it was just save or die, but by extending this petrification process, by giving the character that extra turn, it allows them to make some real hard damage control decisions in the face of what could be death, right? Yeah. So, you know, depending on the character, you might command another character to move you to a safer spot, or you might just dump all of your spells on the enemy basilisk or try to buff the party. Basically, what it comes down to is having this extra turn prolongs the tension and allows the character to make a strategic decision while under that extreme tension which i you know i think the best thing that a role-playing game can do is throw you into a, a very high stakes scenario and have you make meaningful decisions while under that high stakes scenario i i had a thought and a question actually about what you think yeah so what if you begin to become petrified yes and you knock yourself out oh uh, well, you probably, you know, if you become incapacitated, don't you just fail saving throws? Isn't that part of the, in that part of the, the rules? Can't take actions or reactions is incapacitated. Unconscious, automatically fails strength and dex saving throws. So huh. no, I guess you would just still have yeah. to make a constitution saving throw. Okay. I was like, I was like, if you just knock yourself out, do you get out of it? Or well, that that makes a sense, right? Your immune system still works while you're sleeping, right? So yeah, okay, okay. So, I, yeah. just, I was like, just thinking about it. It's like, well, I'm about to die, probably. I'll fireball myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, fuck it. But it's that kind of thing. And admittedly, like, I can see the fighters and the rogues and the melee damage dealers getting really frustrated by being restrained. Mm. But um, I think, you know, basilisks are encouraged by the lore to charge the creature being petrified because they want to eat it. So it might end up being within range anyway. Yeah, plus, I mean, with the DC-12 constitution save, it's like, uh, what, fighters, sorcerers, and... Do paladins have constitution? No, they have... No, it's just wisdom and charisma. I think it's yeah. just fighters and sorcerers get the con save proficiency. Maybe barbarians. You might be right. It might be barbarian. So, like, maybe three. So, so like, maybe three of the 13 classes will probably always succeed the saving throw. Yeah, like, yeah. Just if you if you have built your, your character in such a way that those are your prime stats, you will probably always succeed the saving throw. Yeah. Everyone else, though, is at risk. Yeah, <laughs> but not too much risk, right? You still have, like, 
I don't know, I'd say a 75% chance to get away scot-free. Uh, maybe not 75, but like maybe 60% chance to get away scot-free. Since you get two rolls, it's definitely higher than just save or die, but like considering half the characters you and I both make have like negative two constitution modifiers or negative one constitution <laughs> modifiers. I stopped doing that shit. I learned my lesson the first time. Now all of my characters get at least 10 con. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. So even then at 10 con, it's like a 50% chance, a little less than a 50% chance the first time and a little less than a 50% chance the second time. Yes, yes. It's still so, pretty rough, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's more complex than that though, because we'll get into it that that because that was just paragraph one. Paragraph right. two. So one might be concerned that there's no limit or recharge on the petrifying gaze. Well, if the creature is not surprised, it can avert its eyes to ignore the saving throw at the start of its turn. As a result, it can't see the basilisk. So the way that the book gives you this information, this ends up throwing a pretty big wrench into the encounter design of the creature. So Effectively, what happens is that the ability to avert your gaze ensures that the chance of petrification will only happen at most once per encounter, and possibly not at all, because what happens is this goes back to a common trouble that we have in the show where we talk about how much information does the DM relay to the players, right? Right. So the monster manual gives you this tactic that the players can use called averting your eyes where you just bypass the entire petrification process in exchange for disadvantage on all your attacks against the basilisk pretty much do you as the dm give them this strategy right off the bat do you wait until the characters can reasonably figure out the strategy or what the fuck do you do how do you you know how does this information go through the pipeline as dm uh, column B and column C, which would be if they have discovered beforehand via an NPC that maybe they should avert their eyes, but only, like, if they ask somebody who might know, like, hey, how do we fight this monster? Like, yes, yes. I would never, I would never, like, if they walked into a room with a basilisk, be like, okay, now avert your eyes, or... Yeah, yes. I think that is what I would like to do as well i think that is kind of where i land as well i it's just it it turns this encounter very awkward very quickly because you know this trait is encouraging the basilisk to try to get the drop on the party in order to surprise them because you can't avert your eyes if you're surprised mm -hmm. but the problem is is that the basilisk has no stealth capabilities and then also has a really abysmal passive perception <laughs> so it's not going to surprise the party unless some dice go weird real quick. Secondly, if you decide not to give the players the avert your eyes tactic right off the bat, that means that your basilisk is only going to get one petrification chance on any given player because you as the DM will narrate that the petrification happens through eye contact and then the players immediately will be like, oh, so we don't make eye contact. Yeah, it's just that then they have disadvantage on all their attack rolls against it. And and that's where this turns into shit. So, like, I we talked about this with the Banshee. I like the idea of a monster that can immediately kind of fuck up your party and put you guys into damage control mode. I think that having the encounter immediately devolve into everybody gets disadvantage against this thing with really high AC sucks. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. The, the alternative being tank the saving throws or have area of effect magic, yeah. Yeah, 
yeah. I think it boils down to a similar problem a lot of things have, where it's like monsters are built for a traditional adventuring party uh, in the monster manual, where it's like, if you've got a mage, you have no problems with any monster almost ever. But then don't most spells rely on you being able to see the creature? And then the trait specifically states that if you avert your eyes, you can't see the basilisk. Yeah, I meant like area of effect spells. So like fireball. Sure. But then, you know, you're level three. You have like one fireball. You burn that fireball. You're done for the fight. Oh, yeah. You don't have any fireballs, actually. Thinking about it. Yeah. So like, again, it foils most of your spells. You have disadvantage the entire time. It has a huge SAC, so you're missing all the time. That sounds like fucking torture to me. And it kills me that, you know, the Basilisk starts off with this thing that I really like, this petrification, just to immediately turn into disadvantage, 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 disadvantage. You know, miss, 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 miss. Yeah. And the, like, yeah. And the, the worst part is that you as the player are putting this disadvantage on yourself for dominant strategy. It's not like the Basilisk has a debuff that's like, Oh, because the Basilisk has this aura of fear or whatever, all the players get disadvantage against it. It is me, I am choosing to have a less fun time in this fight so that I can avoid getting petrified. That fucking kills me. Yeah, I mean, like, when you put it that way, yeah. It's definitely not fun sounding at all. No, <laughs> it's it sounds awful. It sounds... And because the fucking problem is, you know, in ne- is endemic to the stats itself... I, like, there's no way to work around it without just remaking the creature, right? So, like, when we were talking about Abolus and how it was shitty that underwater fights are shitty because you get disadvantaged all the time, you can just regulate as DM the amount of water in the arena when you fight the Abolus to make the fight more fun. The Basilisks are just built to not be fun to fight. There's no way around it. And so, you know, when I was taking notes, I was racking my brain to figure out a way to create a fun encounter like a straight battle with a basilisk, and I just, I don't I don't know if it can be done. The only thing I can think would be drop the natural armor to 10. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and don't have the encounter be in a space that is only 30 feet. Let the people run away, because if they're outside of the 30 feet, there's no petrifying. Like, yeah. there's, there's none. Yeah, yeah. So, like, any any ranged character, as long as they're not in a 20-foot-wide cave, is like, yeah, Basilisk, what the fuck? I don't care. But uh, Yes, yes. That also feels like a weird way to game D&D in a way that I don't imagine most parties do, right? Like, it feels weird to me. I If, if I were to imagine me telling a player, oh, the Basilisk only can petrify you out to 30 feet, so just stay outside that range and you'll be fine. That feels strange to me. I don't know how I would adequately... Meh, I guess, you know, you just kind of... It would just come down to information giving, which is a problem that we have with a lot of stuff. It would just be like, if they're within 30 feet when they try, it's like, well, either it's... You make yeah. the constitution, and then they're like, okay, I run away. And then next turn, it's like, do I have to make this check? No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're, like, I agree with you that they're, they're in... In stat block, there's no way to make this fun for anybody who requires to be within 30 feet. Yes. There is no situation, even like a barbarian doing reckless attacks just makes it a flat roll, and that, yeah. like, isn't great. Yeah. Yeah, the armor class is too high. It's very punishing for no good reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
super boring, super dumb. I and again, we were this close to greatness, Basilisk. I'm like super tempted to just like if I were to ever do a Basilisk encounter, scrap this stat block entirely and make a stat block for Dark Souls Basilisks. <laughs> <laughs> that that yeah, that could kind of work if you I don't know. I don't want to get into it because I'm going to say something that could be immediately broken. Uh, uh, but yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I, I can imagine having a lot of fun reworking the Basilisk to make it work and not rely on this averting your gaze thing. We're not totally done with what the Basilisk, Basilisk can do. Uh, there's a cute little detail where if the Basilisk sees a reflection of itself in bright light, it tries to petrify itself. You know, the, the Medusa thing. Yeah. And I... Especially for a monster like this, I am down for any detail that lets me use my brain to just shut down the encounter immediately and bypass garbage. Yeah, and it's funny because its constitution save is only plus two, so, like, you have a 50-50 a shot. Yeah, and then, like, <laughs> its intelligence is so garbage that you could reliably just, you know, have it constantly targeting itself and not learn from its mistakes. Because both its its intelligence and common sense are trash. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's never needs to use its brain, because it can just, you know, stone every prey that it wants. Yeah, I think that's actually the funniest part of it, because normally when people see, like, in other culture, and other games and lore and stuff, it's like an accident. It's mm. like, oh, I looked at myself in the mirror, now I'm stoned, but the basilisk is so fucking stupid. Yeah, it's just a shitty it's animal just, and doesn't know yeah. better. <laughs> it's not that, like, oh, I accidentally saw myself in the mirror, it's like, hey, hey, who's that guy? <laughs> hey, fuck that guy. <laughs> It's like my cat walking by the TV. Yeah. yeah. So, side note, it gets a little bite attack that is a bit more likely to hit, but does a little bit less damage as a trade-off. Similarly with the Banshee, you know, Wizard of the Coast wanted to limit the damage in order to balance the, the, the chance to murder half the party if the dice happen to go well, right? Yeah. Bold decision for them to give it poison damage but no con save, which is different than, like, any monster ever in the book. Didn't the Onkeg have a little damage, Wasn't that a little poison? acid damage? Yeah, it was acid damage. I I don't know what the the norm is. I'll take your word for it. I think you know they just needed to pad out the damage a little bit, and so have some yeah. poison damage. You know. Yeah, it's just it's it's just weird because usually I every monster I can think of that does poison damage with a bite, it's you have to like make a save or take half damage or something like that. I they probably didn't want to crowd out the con saves for the petrification right oh yeah that's true yeah so like i said before because basilisks are internally flawed in terms of a design standpoint i was having a lot of trouble coming up with a good straight basilisk fight in exchange what i think i would do if you put a gun to my head and made me put a basilisk fight in my campaign i would just kind of make it a set piece encounter right so in my ideal scenario, you enter the Bond villain's mansion, he pulls the trapdoor switch, you fall into the basilisk pit. At that point, what I would personally do is count the fact that they've been trapdoored as a surprise round for the enemy. Yeah. That way, you give the basilisk its one petrify on whatever the two closest party members are. That way, they get their oh fuck moment. And then at some point, either beforehand or in the environment, give the party some way to get the basilisk to see its own reflection. So ideally, you know, I want a basilisk encounter to last three rounds tops. I want the oh fuck moment, we're being petrified. I want the the players to get the avert gaze thing so that they can see, you know, oh fuck, in exchange for not being paralyzed, we get disadvantage. 
just long enough for them to be discouraged, but not long enough for them to be frustrated, and then mm-hmm. have that discouragement guide them toward, oh, Joe the wizard gave me a mirror earlier in the day, we can use this, or oh, there's a reflective pool of water in the basilisk pit that we can use to our advantage, or whatever. Anything to get this encounter done as quickly as possible before the players get frustrated by missing all the time. Yeah. I think that sounds like the ideal encounter, yeah. Yeah. Definitely any longer than three rounds, and I would probably start to get frustrated even as the DM. Like, why is this still happening? Yeah. I think that this is a set-piece monster and not a tactical fight-exchange encounter. So that is more or less what I would do. Yeah, I don't think I can even... Like, I... My ideal i guess basilisk encounter prior to this would just be like the medusa fight it just it would just be in a cave filled with statues that have bites taken out of them and then it's like a big cavern and there's a basilisk but like there's no you're you've talked me into realizing that there's no way fighting a basilisk in a cave can be super fun no (laughs) no i don't think so and yeah compared to like a banshee where the banshee can out mobilize you there might be some fun to, like, dodging behind statues and whatnot. Yeah. But because basilisks are slow and shitty, I don't think there would be any... I don't I don't think that would work in this scenario. Give basilisks a burrow speed. <laughs> yeah, well, the first thing you would want to do is take away the avert your gaze thing and then just make the... I, I don't know exactly how I would fix it because I would need, you know, some paper and a couple hours of testing. Petrifying so, gas. Yeah, I, just because of Dark Souls, that might <laughs> yeah. be fun to, like, turn it into a gas and then still have the petrification process. Uh, but, like, I don't know, just just slap a once-a-day thing on it would be the easiest solution. Actually, you kind of already made the solution earlier on accident. If it yeah. was a petrifying gas, it's like, help, I'm being petrified. Someone come grab me and move me out of this gas. <laughs> yeah, you could just turn it into area denial, and that would be kind of fun and a, a decent way to turn it into an actual battle. Uh, but the way it is... I I don't think yeah. fighting the basilisk is the way to go. Yeah, it's like on the flip side of this coin, it's like if you can see the basilisk before you get into 30 feet and you're any kind of good mage or archer, the fight's over before it starts. That's like, not crazy fun either. You know. Yeah, I know, just... that's what I mean. It's like the two yeah. sides of the coin are a not fun fight at close range or a very quick not fun fight at a distance. Yeah, yeah. So, in conclusion, the Basilisk had, you know, has the cadence of a really cool encounter, but turns into something really dull really quickly. I think, you know, if you can make the encounter finish really quickly, it might be a nice way to signal an increase in risk in your encounters. So, if you have, you know, for the last three levels of your party been doing nothing but throwing goblins at them, and you want to eventually someday make the turn to Banshees, right? If you have a big Banshee encounter coming up at level four, but your party is in no way prepared for that sort of thing, this might be a good way to ease your party into a save-or-die-esque scenario, even if they'll only have the one save-or-die role. Beyond that, you know, there's some nice theming going on. I do like the... I like the idea that the Basilisk is a shitty animal because of this ability to turn its creatures into stone and that being an evolutionary crutch. 
Yeah. But beyond that, you know, the nonstop disadvantage sucks really hard. And I, I think maybe as another fix, you could maybe allow called body shots. Usually those feel awkward to me and out of place in D&D. But, you know, if the player was just like, well, I poke out the eyes, then I would be like, I don't fucking blame you. Go wild. <laughs> yeah. What am I going to do? Give you more disadvantage? <laughs> Extra disadvantage. Yeah. Yep. So Basilisk, not not super, not super fun. Not super a fan of. Yeah. In conclusion. Eh. You know what I am a fan of, Travis? What's that? Subscribing to nerdsmith.com where I can find all sorts of fun shows, you know, shows that are the opposite of how I feel when I fight a basilisk. <laughs> For example, you could check out Dear DM, you could check out Countless Heroes, you could check out Monster Crush, our sister podcast that talks about mythological monsters and the sort of culture behind them in the history as opposed to fake ass D&D monsters. <laughs> you could check out In Vain, which is a Vampire the Masquerade actual play podcast that takes place in Germany. Uh, you know, if you're in the mood to get your vampire, your grunge-ass goth kid, vampire self into a vampire-ass world, that would yeah. be what I recommend. Tattooed sleeves, spiked collars, you know, yeah. 1989 in a nutshell. You sure as shit ain't gonna get vampires from us for another, you know, 80 <laughs> months, so yeah, 30, you might as well go years. check those guys out. <laughs> uh, yeah, so until next time, uh, what's our creature comfort? Get yourself a, a nice... <laughs> Get yourself some hot cocoa for starters. Yeah, more hot cocoa. Always just always just assume you need to grab a hot chocolate first thing. Yeah, make sure the chocolate is so hot that the steam <laughs> occludes your vision so you can't see the basilisk. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah, and just don't feel bad about all the misses. It's not your fault. Basilisks are a shitty monster. You're a wonderful person. Yeah, you have advantage on striking our hearts. My heart. <laughs> Have a good day. <laughs> Bye-bye.